Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. And today's episode is actually a live panel that we recorded at the Energy Storage Summit USA, March 3rd and 4th in Fort Lauderdale. It was an interesting dialogue amongst a variety of industry leaders about what's going on in the space. Our panel specifically focused on accelerating U.S. storage and unlocking hybrid projects. And you'll hear from a variety of industry leaders who you'll sort of introduce throughout the discussion. Enjoy. Excited to be here today talking about accelerating U.S. storage and unlocking the hybrid markets. We've got a really fascinating podcast and panel here with some leading experts from the industry What's really been interesting that's come out of, and we heard it from Daniel this morning, the, we're in a transition here in this market in 2019 uh, into 2020, where there's been a lot of maturity and growth. But if we're really going to scale and accelerate, what does that begin to look like? And I think that's going to come into a lot, uh, that picture is going to get a lot clearer this year as we really look into sort of a decade of continued scalability for both solar and storage and uh, the clean energy markets as a whole. So... What we're going to explore today is how we can help unlock that opportunity within both the storage market and the hybrid space. And to start off, I'm going to open up uh, with a question for Holly Christie, who's the general counsel for Hectate Energy. Holly, you've developed deep experience developing and transacting in, uh, in the market, both in your current role and in your previous life. You know, first, can you talk about what Hectate does? And then uh, where do you focus geographically? And what are you looking today at, at the market and deciding where to pursue either storage or hybrid projects? Sure. So um, thanks for that lovely introduction. I'm with Hecate Energy. Um, uh, we are a developer of solar and storage assets. We have uh, about a gig of solar assets out there so far and a couple hundred uh, megawatts of storage in the pipeline, um, which is a lot of fun. I'm the general counsel. So I am the version of AAA for the company. So whatever problem there is, whatever tires fly off, I address those. And the question was where we're... First of all, what are you guys looking at geographically, market-wise? What, what, is, what makes it an interesting market for you guys to get into? And are there specific areas that you know, help you decide where to pursue sort of storage and hybrid projects? Sure. So right now we're doing a whole lot of work domestically and we have some international projects as well. Storage domestically, there's a lot of interest in the Kaiso and ERCOT markets, but I think those are always very, very saturated, very excited markets that move ahead a lot faster than others. Um, The Eastern Seaboard is also seeing a lot of, of changes specifically in the way the New York ISO is, is looking to do their permitting process. So that might bring in a lot more interesting development, but so far, we're, we're hitting everything all the time. So wherever yeah. there's interest, wherever there's an RFP, we'll take it. And it's now becoming, I think, standard for everybody across the board. If, if we're developing a solar project, then we also tack on all the storage options as well. So, And how is that sort of handled internally? If, if you guys are making decisions along the way and it's just here, here we, can, we can tap this in now? Or is it you know, a strategic decision that, hey, Try to load on as much much storage as we can get into these deals today. I think we're anticipating um, what will be market demand in the future. So it's it's just kind of like packing a nice pair of pumps when you're packing a dress. 
it just makes sense. It makes sense now and it makes sense later when you will need that right. to, to match <laughs> the nice dress. So it's a good, it's a great analogy. <laughs> and then uh, Kenichi Hino is a director of energy storage at Geronimo Energy. Um, Kenichi, unlike most players in the industry, you've actually been looking at storage for nearly a decade, which is really impressive. Um, first, can you talk about Geronimo? Um, what do you do and sort of where do you do it? And then secondly, you know, reflect on this last decade in storage and, you know, what have you learned that you sort of sort of see carrying forward in 2020 and beyond? Yeah, great questions. Appreciate the, uh, the opportunity here, John. Um, as far as you know, Geronimo, we are a primarily utility scale player, uh, both wind and solar, pretty much nationwide. Uh, we're headquartered out of Minneapolis um, and over our history, we've grown, you know, from the upper Midwest throughout the country uh, and we are now a, uh, a wholly owned subsidiary of National Grid Ventures. Um, we are actively developing you know, throughout the country, both wind, solar, and storage in hybrid, as well as uh, in standalone formations. I think some of the themes that were touched on yesterday were things that certainly resonate. As far as uh, my background, I was lucky through really zero credit to uh, myself to have had the opportunity to get involved in the PJM Reg D markets in about 2012. Um, and that's, as I'm sure many of you are familiar, been a pretty interesting you know, path, a bunch of uh, twists and turns to that. And I think, um, you know, I was thinking about this, there's a couple key lessons that really carry forwards, but one is really the robustness of your solution, uh, not only on the economic side and what things can change. Uh, regulatory issues are complex, as we've all found out over the last couple of years, and we are still finding out now, um, but also from the technical solution side. You know, what does, you know, uh, do you really need 30 minutes or is an hour a much better idea? Uh, how much margin for error do you have? What's the difference between a good project, a reasonable project, and a total loss? Um, those margins can be pretty thin, as some have seen. Uh, but, uh, and actually, I think the last thing to mention there is just life cycle costs is, is a, or life cycle, and um, really the number of cycles that we can expect to get from a battery is a function of the energy intensity. I think the, the benefit that we've gotten is that we've gotten, one, a lot of operating history, two, um, better you know, facilities for, uh, you know, for testing and you know, reassuring uh, developers, financiers, et cetera, what the uh, potential is there. And, and I think lastly, you know, our, uh, in terms of looking forwards and where we are now, I mean, our modeling techniques, um, I'm sure Gary will speak to this, but we're, we're in a totally different place now than 2012. Yeah. Um, AWS was not a thing, um, and that makes a real big difference to understanding you know, the robustness as well as the you know the stochastic modeling techniques that we need to properly understand storage. I, I'm gonna you hit on a couple of interesting themes, and one of them is sort of we're getting certainty around things like the the uh, life cycle of, of these these batteries. Are you seeing? You know, we're going to talk a lot about today about driving certainty across the market because it's what is going to bring in better investment and really allow us to scale. You know, what has to happen to continue to convince sort of investors or, or to educate investors that, you know, we actually have real data now behind how these things are working? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, the more that we get, you know, brand names out there and the more operating history that we have, obviously, that's going to make it easier. Um, but at the same time, it's not linear in many of these cases. And there is a, a major impact in terms of how you're using it the depth of discharge, et cetera. And so the more that we can get like-for-like -like comparisons out there and the more specificity that we have, 
terms of yes, this battery, not only this, yeah, this battery or this storage hardware solution, but this system overall, thinking about the BMS, EMS sides of things, um, has been operated with these sorts of characteristics, this level of you know, depth of discharge on average, this average SOC over the course of however many years, and it's still got this much life left. Yeah. All those things are things that we need to reassure and, and accelerate and reduce barriers. Yeah, I mean, there's a common theme you probably hear from a lot of investors and even folks that I've run into here where it's like, we're really interested in this market. We're really interested in this market, but we still haven't done any deals yet. So, you know, we want to start to, including us, I mean, clean capital, uh, what we do is we, we, we try to make investing simpler for institutional investors. We have a technology-driven approach, and we talk to a lot of folks who want to move into the storage space, but when you put a deal in front of them, they're still on the verge of, of doing it and then moving, of not doing it. Of, the, 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 the deal flow is just not certain enough yet to really hit scale. And with that, I'm going to go to Gary for a second. Mind passing to the mic. Gary's the founder and CEO of Ascend Analytics. And uh, Gary, as the storage market has continued to mature, we'll talk more about sort of the investment side of it for sure, but uh, the management, the data analytics, and sort of other components of this space are continuing to really uh, grow and find ways to optimize these systems. First, talk for a second about why you founded sort of Ascend Analytics, what you guys do, and then you know what you're seeing in the market for things like the type of premiums that can be earned on uh, on storage, sort of beyond just energy and ancillary, ancillary services. And for the podcast folks, we have some slides that Gary's going to be referencing that we will be having on the website. All right, uh, I founded Ascend in 2002. We're now about 50 people, so it's grown a bit from my basement. Uh, we're a decision analytic uh, software and consulting company based in Boulder, Colorado. And we primarily serve as the analytic link between the physical and the financial, which is what storage really is. It's uh, an asset that physically firms power and uh, when it's used properly, uh, can act as uh, a mechanism for realizing additional returns and creating financially firm <laughs> products. Uh, we work uh, for banks and developers and utilities and valuing storage projects. We also operate assets and are bidding them into the ISOs on an hourly basis. And uh, we're also involved in resource planning and portfolio management. In terms of storage, uh, I wanted to go over just a little bit of the fundamentals, some of which uh, I touched upon yesterday. Uh, but it's important just to set this in your mind's eye. And uh, for those who are listening and not viewing these, I'll just describe them. Uh, so if we look through time, just at a typical day in California, there's two types of prices where uh, storage is going to be operating principally, and that's the real-time energy price, uh, which is shown in orange here, um, and there's a, a green day-ahead price. And you can see uh, the y-axis ranges from roughly uh, $0 to $1,000 a megawatt hour. And things are pretty quiescent until early in the morning, and then the price of energy for the real time suddenly shoots up from about $10 a megawatt hour to $1,000 a megawatt hour, just for five minutes, and it goes right back down. And then we go on to about 9.30, and the price shoots up to about $300 a megawatt hour for 10 minutes, and then back down. And we see a few more price spikes. Anything over 100 we consider a price spike. Uh, and as, as we go through time, we see three or four of these during the day. That's what batteries do, is they tackle these price spikes. No startup costs, no shutdown costs. They're the insurance mechanism to respond to these real-time price spikes. 
you can see the day ahead prices in green, and they're almost flat at about $25 a megawatt hour throughout the day. Yes, there's this idea of the dock, and it does manifest itself in terms of prices. Uh, certainly when the sun is at its zenith angle around noon, prices tend to get a little bit lower in California today with all the solar, and they do get higher when the sun sets. But that delta maybe of $20 a megawatt hour is small in comparison to the real time. In the end, effectively all activity is settled against the real-time price. Suddenly this resource is very dynamic. It can help capture the variability in the real-time prices, both positive and there are negative prices. The amount of negative prices are growing. And so that's the fit. In terms of how storage operates as a physical hedge, it collects an insurance premium above and beyond what it could garnish and just simply operate in real-time prices. Uh, so I put an example here. And the way to think of it is this. If you're a retailer and you have to serve load, there's no way you want to be caught short and exposed to those real-time price spikes. You don't know how long they're going to be, how many they're going to be. You're going to cover yourself at least in the day-ahead market. And realistically, you're going to cover yourself well in advance of that with monthly activities, maybe even six months or a couple years out, insulating yourself against market moves. Storage was just to operate to real-time prices. might earn, let's say, $25 a megawatt hour. Well, there's a premium of day ahead above real-time on average, just because the demand, at least, for day ahead prices, but also uh, the insurance, there's risk. So let's say that price is $27 a megawatt hour. Well, if you were to buy the monthly block, typically there's a little premium for the monthly above the day ahead. That might be $28 a megawatt hour. And then if you were to use storage as a shape product, uh, meeting the exact dynamics of load, that would have a bigger premium, like $36 a megawatt hour. So these premiums where we see real time at the far left, less than day ahead, less than monthly, less than shaped, is a function of market dynamics. There's a balance between sellers and buyers, and there's definitely a little extra push for the buyers to cover themselves. And that helps create these premiums in addition to the inherent risk. When you have something that's inherently really volatile and you can't effectively store for long periods of time, like power, we have these massive price spikes just to address the imbalances that happen with the system. And as we have more and more renewables coming onto the system, there's more forecast error. And that uncertainty in supply leads to more volatility in prices. And that's where storage steps in. Interesting. It's great. Great overview. I appreciate it. So with the, you know, the idea, again, talking about accelerating the space, you know, to accelerate the market, we not only need the developers out there doing the work they're doing, the technology needs to come along, which it's coming along, the, the uh, way to manage and utilize the different financial tools that storage has and revenue op opportunities. You also need an ecosystem to transact. And I sort of want to talk about that ecosystem a little bit, Holly. Um, you need lawyers that understand how this works so they can actually get the deals done. You need accountants that understand the different uh, revenue models and how it's going to tie into uh, the deals themselves. Uh, and advisors that can help firms like ours and, and institutional investors get over the uh, fear of the uncertainty of the space. How, you know, as, as our resident lawyer on the panel, how do you see uh, the ecosystem developing and becoming more advanced uh, here in 2020 and beyond? 
So I think um, I think one of the most difficult things with storage has been that it's such a, an unusual product and it doesn't work like other products. Right. And you have this fruit platter of, of, of different kind of things that, that you can pick from as far as uh, what you're marketing and what you're using the product for. So I think the, the ecosystem is, is coming online to, to really be able to take advantage and, and work through and get more um, familiarity in the marketplace of, of what those different kind of products can do. So um, just like if you put one of those strange frogs in Australia and it eats everything and it doesn't work out really well, yeah. it's, it's the same kind of thing where, where we have this concept of this is what storage is. You know, it works like an energy product. We're going to contract it like an energy product. And, you know, there's so much more that can be done there with that. So I think yeah. as that ecosystem comes online, as you have folks that can support, as you, as you have insurance products that can support various kind of contingencies with the product, um, we can get a lot more depth in the market and we can get a lot more saturation with regard to what, uh, what the market's looking for. So the reason I ask that is because the soft costs of getting these deals continue to be significant, right? And the, the amount of advisors and consultants and education you need for all the different players along the way, including the legal bills, which go up ginormously on every day. Right. I mean, everybody <laughs> hates lawyers, right? Yeah. <laughs> we love lawyers. It just costs us a lot of freaking money. Um, <laughs> Do you see? Have you seen that compressing? Have you seen those sort of soft costs compressing as people getting are getting more uh, educated in the space? I think, I think I see it because I want to see it. Yeah. Right. So, um, one of the things I struggle with that's directly a, a cause of this or or because of this is um, kind of contract variety around certain products. So you are contracting for RA and you have maybe six different contracts that you can use for that. Right. And none of them are the perfect fit, really. None of them are developed for the RA market specifically. So so you have a lot of variance. You have a lot of like chubbiness around the sides of contracts. You have a lot of, it's like trying to find the perfect Uber. You know, you want a Maserati, but (laughs) there's like a minibus shows up and then like a Ford Taurus shows up and, And in talking with counterparties, especially uneducated counterparties or less educated counterparties, when they show up with a minibus and you're like, that's a lot of seats. Right. We don't need that many seats. <sighs> um, or the tourists, like, this is not comfortable. It's not cute. We're not going to have a good time in this car. Yep. We don't have to contract with an EEI for an RA product. Like, that's just causing us all pain. We're already depressed and sad people. <laughs> Because so, their blinds are down here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so let's find and work together towards something um, that gets us toward what we're looking for without all the extra seats and the, the uncomfortable rides. So that yeah, education I mean, familiar process. familiar rider is like PPAs, right, in solar. And I think there was mm-hmm. this expectation in the market that that same familiarity would just get people comfortable with storage, sure. but it's not the same thing. Right? No. And it's just those it's lessons are being learned heavily. So. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, please. So I, I feel like it's all of these uncertainties that are out there that we're getting better at, and we are certainly you know, progressing towards it. But between, you know, for the developer side, we're bringing together not only the solution uh, and the financing, but also you know the utility construct or the and contract as well, right. and um, you know an RTO is the regulatory structure. So um, this matter of you know matching what we are providing and defining it better. It's a, if it's a Maserati or a scooter. Right. 
Um, and you know, from the utility side, you know, being able to spec that and not say, well, 90% of the time I want it to be a Maserati, but 10% I want it to be a scooter, right? Or what's it going to cost me for it to have the optionality of being a scooter 10% of the time? Right. And then going back to the solution provider side, figuring out what that costs and getting through those cycles and understanding what's a reasonable ask, what's not. You know, we're, we're getting there slowly, um, but uh, we can all do you know, some parts of that to bring those soft costs down. And so I think it's, it's a bunch of little steps from everybody involved to get there. Right. So could you get, hold on, Mike, because my next question is for you. And we talked about this a little earlier this morning. And I think one of the changes in the market that's different today than maybe solar was 10 years ago is you now have a much more sophisticated and demand-driven space coming out of corporate America, right? I think just to put some numbers out there, more than 200 companies have committed to 100% renewable energy, including behemoths like Apple, Walmart, Facebook, and Google. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, uh, corporate PPAs went up 44% in 2019, totaling 19.5 gigawatts. So that CNI market, the DG market, they're not all DG. Some they're doing virtual PPAs, they're doing a variety of different approaches. It's a sophisticated marketplace now that has a demand for storage. How is that affecting your guys' ability to sort of develop and is it creating opportunity? Yeah, I think it's a great thing and it is creating a lot of opportunity. And the market, as you said, is only growing. We've we're going from you know the truly massive players, you know, and and that's kind of the structures that we're developing there, enabling smaller players to come in and chip in their demand as well. Um, so we've, we've seen that as a, as a major asset. I think the other thing that one of the other aspects is um, we've seen some of those same buyers get more involved in the RTOs, have more of a voice, get involved in regulatory proceedings, um, things like green sleeve contracts uh, in, you know, in non-RTO markets that enable them to access uh, wind and solar much easier. Those are huge benefits to us. Um, I think on the storage side of things, we're we're getting there. And one of the more interesting and leading edge factors that we're seeing is uh, is this push towards uh, zero gross carbon rather than just zero net hmm. um, and matching demand twenty four seven. That is a you know, I think a leading edge aspect that uh, a few of the CNIs are looking at. Yeah. Um, and as we think through that, you know, we're going to get to you know, the best way to do that. Right? Is it is it Paired with your generation, is it paired on site? You know, how much resiliency do you want? You know, getting to you know, understand the total impact of a of a corporate's operations and how to leverage storage best to uh, you know to optimize for whatever the objectives are. We're getting there. We're seeing that, but uh, we're in early days. Yeah, and they, they become an interesting, um, an interesting. They're laying the groundwork in interesting ways in certain places, like Vermont's a great, or Vermont, Virginia's a great example. Virginia just passed, passed really amazing and progressive clean energy policies, which is amazing. I lived in Virginia for a long time. Dominion hated clean energy as much as they talked about how much they loved it. Is it possible to get stuff done? Microsoft and Google went in for two years and pounded them because they said, we're not going to bring our data centers here unless you can find a way to to change the way you approach things. And then we got to a place where they've opened up the market for a lot of other people. So I think that uh, continued work from them is going to be important for us as in the market to, to support. And the demand they're drawing is great. Sometimes their expectations are pretty intense. But, you know, I think we can uh, try to leverage that demand as much as possible. Gary, I want to hand it back to you. After the next round of questions, I'm going to open it up to the audience. So please, if you've got questions, think about them and, and write them down. Uh, but, you know, Gary, how do you... We talked earlier about how PPAs were, you know, such a driving force in, in solar and, you know, not 
for renewable plus storage, it's not that simple. How do you see sort of renewable and storage projects utilizing things like hedges to find the, the highest level of revenue for the, off, or for the owners? Yeah, we're seeing renewables and storage kind of follow in the footsteps of thermal assets. You can't always get a PPA, uh, but you have a great project. There's a window of opportunity uh, with investment tax credits. And so what do you do? And how can you take advantage of over-the-counter hedge instruments like we've been doing with thermal and put the pieces together to financially firm delivery of energy? And uh, there are two key ways that we look at uh, taking advantage of um, Delivery. One is taking advantage of the ITC, and that would be what we call, uh, and I'm illustrating here, is a uh, closed system. So this is where the battery charges uh, or is charged by solar. The other system is open, where the battery is going to operate independently of the solar system, and it's grid charging. With the closed system, you're able to get the 30% ITC uh, because of the grid charging. Well, let's go ahead and look at a solar plus storage for a four-hour system hedged. I won't look at the premiums I talked about uh, in my earlier question response. But we can see here, um, and for those who are on the podcast, uh, I'll explain it to you. We've taken a solar system combined with a four-hour battery, and this is for a closed. That means ITC compliant, 30% uh, tax credit towards the battery. And this is initially unhedged, uh, as shown in red. And then we have green showing hedged. And what happens here is we have an expected uh, commercial gross margin of NPV of $243 million. So that's the expected, that's the average NPV return. If we look at the at-risk component, the difference between the mean and the fifth percentile, we look at this unhedged solar plus battery, it's $87.5 million. So it's a pretty big risk there. Uh, if you're expected as 250, you have 87.5 million at risk. Uh, well, let's take a hedge. It's a simple block on peak, off peak. In this case, it'll be on peak. Uh, solar plus storage asset, exact same one, exact same expected return of $242 million. We layer on the hedge, the gross margin at risk drops from 87.5 million to 24.5 million. So roughly a third of the amount of risk. Simple over-the-counter hedge instruments readily available through any broker in the market. That's great. You've taken uh, a lot of almost, well, you've reduced the risk to something that's quite manageable. You've firmed up returns. In addition, you're able to earn premiums above and beyond um, what I'm showing here because you're able to still operate the asset to the day ahead real-time prices and collect other forms of insurance premiums above and beyond spot. But in terms of financing, you can go out at least three years with these hedge instruments and bring in maybe a mini perm or certainly uh, have a rolling the hedge forward strategy and look for other ways of uh, bringing in institutional equity and debt on a projects. If we look at uh, the same system closed versus open, there's a little more risk in closed versus open. Uh, so open being grid charging. You don't qualify for the ITC. Um, but you, you do have the ability to charge when you want, when it's economically opportune. And uh, in doing so, the risks come down, maybe an extra 10%. 10% per year versus 30% up front. Most people take it up front. But there are some projects and sites that are more volatile. We'll see 25% difference. So being open, not taking advantage of the ITC, may be beneficial. 
And operationally, what we'll see is uh, when you have grid charging, you're able to move the asset up and down a lot more, take advantage of uh, ancillary services generally a lot more. So it's a little less risk in that regard. And it's a trade-off that needs to be evaluated. But using renewables plus storage as a basis to create financially firm products is the future. And that's how these projects are going to get developed. So how, how often are you seeing this hedge being uh, worked into the financial models of, the, of systems that you're seeing? So hedging is, is certainly relatively new to renewables. Um, so if you have a merchant generation, you have no choice but to begin looking at ways of, right. frankly, exploiting the, the value that you're producing. And doing, it on a, uh, doing hedging without having the backup of a battery, even just a short duration, one hour, two hour battery, that's too risky. I mean, you just can't do it. You can do a little bit with solar, it's dependability, but you know, realistically, it's, it's a big risk to undertake. Even just doing day ahead versus real time is, is hard to do. You have to have very good weather forecast uh, or in forecast of your production. You can do a little bit of hedging perhaps, uh, but not enough to really move the needle and uh, effectively mitigate risks. So it's the combination of renewables plus storage that enables developers to, to create a financially firm product. And that's where they'll start earning premiums above and beyond spot. Right, right. So let me open it up to the, the audience to see uh, if there's any questions. If there are, please raise your hand. We'll bring a mic around. Hi, Lee Bailey here. So when you go out to the investment community seeking equity investment, what kind of returns do you tell the investor they're going to get if they invest in, whether it's Ascend or one of the other uh, companies uh, doing this kind of sophisticated data analysis uh, with storage? Well, uh, returns are really project-specific and depends on the nature of the project and how the pieces are put together. Um, you know, our job is to forecast the revenues. Certainly what we're seeing is even on a merchant basis, financial institutions are getting comfortable with loaning to merchant uh, renewables plus storage in particular, but even just merchant projects, storage alone and renewables. Uh, it's definitely evolving much closer to the comfort level that uh, financial institutions and institutional equity has with uh, thermal assets. And their participation has been critical for the development of thermal. We're seeing this following the same footsteps for <coughs> renewables. And this is great. It's something that's welcome. And, and realistically, not everybody can get a PPA. Uh, the, the best you can do realistically today is, uh, at least at any scale, is perhaps a capacity contract. And capacity is definitely something that's coveted and really liked uh, by financial institutions. In Texas, there is no capacity market, but there's a very active over-the-counter hedge market. And so there's other mechanisms of securing uh, revenue streams to these projects. So you combine uh, the inherent production at zero cost variable for renewables with some flexibility of storage we're seeing new structures and forms that are supporting future revenues. I think in terms of returns, maybe uh, I'll turn to my colleagues to, to my right here. Sure, I'll take sure. a shot at take it. Shot, um, yeah. In terms of project returns, as Gary said, you know, everything is project specific. Um, and really it depends on, you know, when we think about the risks that we're taking. Uh, for example, a solar plus storage project with the you know, a 15, 20 year utility contract with a credit worthy entity, you know, that's that's a pretty fair or a pretty low risk project, right? Which shouldn't be priced to that much of a premium. 
Um, there's a spectrum as far as the, uh, the level of uncertainty and the sources of uncertainty that you're taking on, uh, the time to capital, et cetera. Uh, and yeah, depending on the views that you take, I think those returns can get pretty high uh, in certain situations as you look across the spectrum of potential storage projects. Hi. How do you insulate your asset against unanticipated long-term outages and things like fires and things like that? Yeah, I think there's, uh, well, I'll take the first shot before turning it over to the, the lawyer and tire patcher here. <laughs> uh, from, uh, from my perspective, I think uh, it starts up front in terms of specking what exactly you need um, for the revenues that you're looking for, and then making sure that any warranties, operating conditions, et cetera, are, are fully matched um, in what you're getting from your supplier base. So making sure that you have both the flexibility to do it and the, uh, the financial protections um, that you need to, uh, to do what you think you need to do to make your money is, is step one. Um, you mentioned fires. I think thermal protection is, you know, a, uh, it's pretty, yeah, yeah, top of mind for, for many, if not most. Um, and I think we are you know, getting there in terms of you know, the, uh, the needs and the permitting requirements across the board. Uh, I think uh, you know, better, well, let me see. I think system reliability, you know, as we touched on with John earlier, is really the key there. And um, getting you know, more proven operating history, more proven safe operating history across you know, entire solutions, not just particular components, is... Uh, is one thing that we're really looking for and that we think can make a big difference in terms of uh, reliability and safety. So I, it's very odd to talk on this thing like this, but uh, so <laughs> I would say, how do you kind of hedge against those, those issues, those risks carefully? So a lot of times when developers who I love, I love developers, they're so eager, they're so zealous, but um, they're also eager and super zealous to, to sign those contracts really fast. And uh, the cost-benefit analysis of that is, like, how, how long do you want to spend kind of negotiating the, those smaller terms that may not be important versus how worried or risk-adverse are you to those potentially low-probability risks that, that may happen? So, for example, the coronavirus for the last month, I've been preaching that we slap in a, a more robust force majeure provision just in everything that has to do with product acquisition, um, EPC, any of the kind of M&A docs. And then within the last week, I've looked at that and said, okay, we need to pull this back out of a force majeure provision because in order for it to be a force majeure provision, it has to be reasonably unforeseeable. And at this point, it's not unforeseeable. So now um, we're tacking it in as its own really fun doomsday clause. Eh? Yeah. So... Um, we're seeing that um, that be a very important important part of the negotiations as well. And I think if you have a product and you take just a little while and you sit down and you go into the dark place of what are all the worst terrible things that could happen and say, you know, which of these make me actually very uncomfortable, which, which are we kind of risk tolerant to, you can usually contract around those if you're very careful with that. So. Before about the doomsday clause. Doomsday clause. Ooh, isn't that so exciting? So with regard to the doomsday clause, I've, I've seen a couple out there. Um, I've put together one. It's very sparkly. You would love it. But uh, it just talks about the, the potential for delay. And, and what we're trying to hedge against there is, is, of course, not being able to get financed. Finance guys love security. 
And what's not secure is knowing where where your stuff is going to come from and when it's going to come. So uh, we try to take the risk out of that by saying, you know, kind of these are the parameters of of how wrong it could go and where we could still, you know, kind of keep the project on the rails. And and this is what would happen in these kind of very, very worst case scenarios, 120 days, 160 days, however long you can kind of stretch that out, um, should uh, the, the panels or the the battery cells or, or whatever you're looking for not be able to get here from wherever they're having problems. Things to be aware of, I've seen doomsday clauses that have that call out specifically the COVID-19 virus, which is hunky-dory until the COVID-19 virus morphs into something else, and then you're not covered at all in your doomsday clause. So if you're drafting these, first, great work. Second, be vague, you know, because the end of the world could happen in a lot of fun different ways. So... You might want to cover all of those. Um, so, so you say uh, delays in, in your uh, subcontractor, your shipping, your procurement, that can be, it's, it's like a force majeure language that can be tied back to the global pandemic, which may or may not stem from COVID-19. Keep, keep the questions coming if you have, but I, I sort of want to go, going back to, you talked about this being in the investor side, they do want certainty, right? And, you know, the more you can sort of de-risk this and bring certainty, the better, but we're still, you know, that transition Daniel talked about this morning from 2019 to 2020, there's still a lot of uncertainty. We're seeing major players in the market shifting their business cases, for instance, between STEM and AMS and others. They'll go from being full developers to just being SaaS systems. You're seeing the technologies change. You're seeing the policies change and continue to morph. Massachusetts got maybe a clean peak standard coming out, right, which is very exciting. It can provide a lot of opportunity, but there's still just a lot of uncertainty around it. What are, this is sort of an open to each of you, and I'll sort of start off with, with Kenichi and pass it down, but what are sort of the two to three developments that are necessary in sort of the next year or two to really accelerate that certainty in the market and help us scale and accelerate the acceptance of solar, solar plus storage? Two to three, huh? Um, <laughs> well, not, not seven, yeah. but yeah. Um, in, in my view, from the, the market side and, and coming at it from more of the economics and revenue streams, I think uh, we are seeing the RTOs build on FERC 841 um, with some uh, questions about solar plus storage. And I do believe that there's, in terms of the amount of megawatts deployed, solar plus storage will probably exceed standalone. Um, and uh, I think clarity, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, on the utility scale side, I should yeah. say, yeah. Uh, but uh, I think we're we're seeing task forces developing right now. Um, some are in progress that are going to establish all these rules for how uh, solar plus storage projects are are allowed to operate, how you're accredited for capacity, what you are required to do in terms of your bidding, uh, these sorts of things that are filling in around FERC eight forty one. But that. I think is a, is a major source of you know, removal of uncertainty that will certainly help. And um, closely related to that, I think, is um, a lot of the work being done on capacity accreditation for storage. I had some conversations about this you know, yesterday and today. Uh, but, um, you know, storage is many things. It can be almost anything. And um, what's it worth for different applications? That's a, a tough question. And we're in, yeah, we've got some questions or some answers to it, but... Are we looking at a 20-year project? And if so, do we believe that for 20 years? I don't, right. I don't think we're quite there yet. So I think getting those two things out and, and uh, having a little bit more certainty for investors would really help. Great. Holly? 
Yeah. Firstly, if, if you were like a fairy and you were like, what would you really like? Yeah. I, I, I'd say consistency across the RTOs would be awesome. You know, what is capacity? Gosh, right. I'd really like to know that forever, but that's not something I can do a lot of fiddling with. So if you have those magic powers, let's talk later. And if you don't, I would probably look back to uh, my most important things being uh, contract consistency. I find financeability or finance guys um, like container a lot. So Yogi Bear, always after the picnic basket, right? We never really talked about what was in the picnic basket. Right. It was just always about the picnic basket. Finance guys are the same or similar where as long as it's in a picnic basket, right. they're like, cool, we'll give you money for that. <laughs> So <laughs> what I try to create the picnic basket out of is a, a long-term contract or of, of, of some kind of duration that looks like a PPA looks, that looks familiar, that you have these, you know, here's a product and here's the, you know, income that you're getting and here's the long-term and it's okay. And then to back that up with like um, back-to-back guarantees and, and long-term warranties and things like that. And if, if you don't have that from your supplier or your subcontractors, there's a lot of really cool insurance products that you can get to kind of bolster those up and create the look of a right. picnic basket. I love it. So we need more picnic baskets. More picnic industry. baskets. Gary. All right. Uh, I'm going to flip the question uh, backwards here because uncertainty is what inherently drives the value of storage. I mean, storage is the ultimate physical hedge in terms of responsiveness to create a firm financial product. It can tackle the real-time price spikes better than any other type of resource. So what we need is more uncertainty in market price dynamics. We need clear price signals that reflect both forecast error, congestion, and scarcity. And when those price signals are clear and storage can operate to them, they'll be able to earn premiums for that flexibility and, I think, in creating financially firm products as well. And that's what they'll drive a lot of value. So it's uncertainty is what we need for storage, renewables plus storage, to extract value. Um, in terms of, uh, I think, moving forward from a policy perspective, perhaps uh, the subsidies that have been out there and even the ITC, that's very ambiguous uh, as to its future. Right. Uh, we have uh, you know, state programs that are coming in and subsidizing development of storage, Massachusetts and New York in particular, uh, versus regional programs and carbon. And uh, carbon, I think, if there was a more uniform approach, I think that'd be a more efficient mechanism of incentivizing storage and having some uh, more certainty there would help. And obviously, in the investment tax side, having the certainty would help. I mean, we hear a lot about the different uh, sort of policy implications, whether it be uh, at the state level. I think all of us in the industry have to step back and say, look, what's going to happen this year? And then what's going to happen in 2021 and beyond, right? What's, is, are things going to change in Washington? Is it going to continue to be a state-level fight? And I think one of my challenges to the audience, both in the room and on the podcast, is we have to be the voices at the table pushing for that change. So you have to actively uh, be part of the conversations. If you're in New York, you need to go to Albany. If you're in Vermont or in Virginia, you go to Richmond. You need to be part of that dialogue. One of the things we did at Clean Capital is we actually mapped out all of our systems and by zip code and who the congressional member was. And we were surprised at how many fell into 
First of all, we had an intern do it, so it doesn't cost anything. It's really great. <laughs> Challenge you all to do it. Find out who the, the members were. There were a lot more Republican members than we expected. And we actually wrote them letters and just said, hey, we've got solar systems in your district. This, the, the ITC is a really important thing for us. It's really important for jobs in your district. But we all have to be active roles in that policy push if we're going to see this certainty. So I think my challenge to each of you is what, what's going to happen this year to sort of start to lay the market groundwork. But we're going to see some dramatic changes possibly in policy in 21, uh, 2021 and beyond. You have to be active participants. It's hard to do. But take a look at partners like the Energy Storage Association, at Solar Energy Industry Association, others, and be part of that. It's a, a great way to uh, engage and really lay the groundwork for the market that we all are looking for. So I guess my, uh, just to, to close out, is there any sort of final uh, thoughts or comments about how we uh, continue to really accelerate things going forward? I think this has been a really interesting conversation. Anything to, to help accelerate? To continue the acceleration, yeah, which is sort of the... Well, uh, I think inherently with the amount of renewables entering the system, there's going to be continued acceleration of pairing renewables and storage. Renewables are the critical driver for uh, variability in uh, real-time prices and creating some even day-ahead prices, some movements. And it's that up-down movement, that volatility in prices, that's the, the I say, central engine of value that storage provides. And without that volatility, storage isn't worth much. So... As long as renewables continue to progress and we have market mechanisms working, developing price signals that are consistent and volatile, we'll have increased value for storage and we'll need more storage. And this is kind of an inherent dynamic as we go higher and higher renewables. That's great. 40% of Americans live in a state right now that has a 100% renewable energy goal. Hey, that's which awesome. Is, yeah, which nice. is more and more demand is going to be coming up. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super super excited about storage. Um, I mean, it's it's different. It works different. It looks different. It's it's something new. The technology is very exciting, very cutting edge, and it requires people to be a lot more flexible when they think of how it could function and how it could look in the marketplace. So it's for me exciting because it's the wild west. It it both uh, contracts and it breaks in ways that other things don't break. So so you get to go off the reservation and really right. create create the things that, that are going to be the industry standard for, for this market going into the future. So that's really cool. But it also requires a lot of folks to be very creative, to be a little bit more flexible, and to sit down and have conversations um, when they're looking at contracting things or when they're looking at kind of the long-term resolutions uh, of issues around storage, probably more so than, than any other renewable technology has so far. So um, if I could have one kind of go out there and do this, I would say, you know, keep having those conversations. Like stuff like this is super important and uh, and keep an open mind because you might invent a whole new way to do something. Yeah. New picnic basket. For me, I'm going to go back to what Gary said and, and echo the, the renewables push. I think there's a, a great virtuous cycle between renewables and storage in terms of creating a need and also storage enabling further penetration of renewables. That is not meant to just be limited to batteries, but all types of storage and uh, new and emerging technologies, as well as those that are old and well-proven. Um, so I think that's one big thing that will help accelerate this because I think the reality is while we've got great pushes that are happening in terms of the mandates, potential tax policy, et cetera, um, it's really the polls that are going to accelerate the speed of deployment and 
the speed with which we get certainty on many of these things that we want, more picnics, picnic baskets faster and all that. So um, I, I think renewables and the increasing deployment of renewables are the, the most logical and most reliable path to getting there. Excellent. Well, thank you to a phenomenal panel for your, your insights today. Uh, and thank you to Energy Storage USA for hosting us here. Uh, as, as, as always, you can get more of our experts-only podcasts, episodes at cleancapital.com. If you are developers in the audience and are interested in uh, transacting, we would love to talk to you afterwards. Um, and uh, as always, for the audience, uh, to the podcast, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.